Welcome to Buy, Grow, Sell, a podcast for entrepreneurs looking to acquire, grow, or exit a business, hosted by Simon Bedard. Hey there, it's Simon Bedard here. If you're brand new to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast, then welcome. It's great to have you on this journey. Since its launch, I've interviewed many entrepreneurs that have bought, grown, or sold a business. And in some cases, they've completed all three steps and started all over again. Our goal is to share the stories of business owners that have traveled at least part of this cycle so that we can learn from their experience. Whether it's the dizzying heights of success or the hard lessons learned through adversity, we get to the heart of what drives success and how to apply these lessons on your journey. So join us for the best insights, interviews, and inside information on how to buy, grow, and sell a business straight from the entrepreneurs who've lived and breathed it. Welcome back to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast. My next guest is the lovely Nikki Senyard. Nikki has a really interesting story. She started a marketing tech business called Income Access, which was really focused on affiliate marketing and providing the technology bridge between different parties, tracking, auditing, managing the entire sort of transaction, making sure people get paid, et cetera. A fascinating business that she built up over 14 years turned it into an amazing company that finally got acquired by a listed business in Canada. What I love about this episode is that Nikki just shares such an authentic and genuine story about her journey, the journey of the business, how it grew, how it evolves, some of the milestones and things that, uh, that the, the company, but also she had to experience as a leader. You know, I think we're all on our journey. We all have obstacles and hurdles and we all need to evolve not just as business people, but as humans. And uh, I, I just got so much out of Nikki's story and learning how to approach some of those big milestones and, and hurdles in our lives. I know you're going to get a lot out of this. Nikki's such a wonderful person. This is Nikki Senyard. Nikki Senyard, welcome to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast. Thanks so much for having me. My absolute pleasure. I know we're going to kind of unpack your story a little bit and and how you founded and sold Income Access, but um, maybe I could hand it over to you for a moment. Maybe you could just give us a little bit of background and kind of what led to you starting that company. Um, sure. I was actually um, in PR and marketing and I actually, this was now now, now 30 years, not 30 years ago, it was a good 20 years ago. Um, and digital had just started. Google started in 98. And um, basically, we we're out there looking at different things that were going on. And I found this, I found digital marketing, right? So this is, I've, I've been in sort of like land-based marketing all this time, and I found digital marketing. And I've always been a niche player. I've always liked to specialize in a niche, Mine before was professional services marketing, and so we found a niche. And in digital marketing, I found this type of digital marketing that was called affiliate marketing. Now, most people don't know about affiliate marketing because it's the least um, visible form of marketing. It's sort of like in digital marketing, you've got buckets. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so just for the layman, I mean, what, what, what is affiliate marketing? Marketing. I was just about to explain that, so thank yeah. you. Um, <laughs> So in digital marketing, you've got two buckets. You've got one that's brand marketing and the other one that is um, acquisition marketing. Affiliate marketing falls into the acquisition marketing bucket. 
what actually happens in acquisition marketing, you use all the common um, channels like organic search, paid search, organic social, paid social, email marketing, all of those sorts of things. And then you've got this sort of like redhead child at the end of the funnel that's called affiliate marketing. And affiliate marketing is where the parties get paid. So it's more a collaborative relationship. So you've got product on one side, whether it be shoes, electronics, or financial services or whatever else. And then on the other side, you've got publishers. So publishers are websites that actually talk about either financial literacy or whatever the content, you know, reviews on electronics. And there's a link behind them when they do a product review. And if the customer clicks on that link and goes through and buys, the referring website gets paid a commission. They don't get paid a placement fee. They get paid a commission. So I found affiliate marketing 20 odd years ago. And to me, it was the closest form of media relations because you were working with journalists to get the name out there and you volumized. And I loved earned media. So this was sort of a way of um, paying for earned media in an earned way. So we actually created a technology platform we created the platform. We actually got it built. And then we started specializing in niche. We started the business in its conceptual form in Australia and then actually moved to Canada because the industry that we were in was regulated online gambling. And it was huge in the States at the beginning of the 2000s. And working from Australia was a very difficult time zone. So we basically, to start the business, we sold our house took the money and moved to Canada and basically tried to make a go of it. And that's what we did. Awesome. Awesome. I can, I can imagine too, from a customer perspective, affiliate marketing, you, you're paying when sales go through as opposed to potentially pouring a lot of money into a big black hole, not knowing really if it's going to work or not. That's why I loved it. I loved this sort of like um, action result type situation. And we actually built a technology that tracked all of that. So basically the, the technology sits between the product, which was an online gambling site at the time, and the publisher or the affiliate, and we were the middleman. So we were sort of like the marriage broker or the Switzerland between both of those parties. And we were the one that created the transparency. So we created the tracking links, we did the commission calculations, we did the payouts, we did all of those sorts of things that added at, as a facilitator for that relationship. Yeah, nice, nice. That's really interesting. Um, especially these days too, there's so much more about online and e-com and all these sort of, I, I had somebody on the podcast yesterday who was, had a business that purely audited Amazon transactions to find all the errors and get the payments sent back. So it's, you know, I think there's this assumption for most of the consumers out there that you, you use a platform like Amazon and, oh, it just it must be correct because, you know, it's Amazon. But yeah, clearly, clearly nothing is that simple. <laughs> No, it's not when you, you scratch the surface and then you get into the deep, you know, you get into the nitty gritty and the details of the thing. And that's where affiliate marketing has actually kept my interest for that long because it's such an intricate, very simple, very, you know, very transactional, very simple, but very intricate when you get into different industries. Yeah. Can I ask, did you have much of a tech background prior to that? None. Yeah. None. So, so how do you approach that? Because I, I think, you know, I certainly have met plenty of business owners out there who, who love the idea of embracing technology and building a solution to, you know, in, in their niche, their part of the world. But this thought of going into the great unknown of developing tech is, is quite 
scary. And once again, that whole concept of a black hole and pouring money into it keeps coming up. So how did, how did you handle that? Um, I think it was just very pragmatic. It, you know, like the fact is that um, when you're building technology, it, 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 you know, like I, I, I said, we always had the, we always, when the business was like five of us and, you know, 10 of us or whatever else, we always used to have the discussion, are we a marketing company or are we a technology company? And what had ended up always happening is technology won because the multiples and technology was so much better than the multiples and money. Yeah, so let's yeah, be very yeah. happy about this. Um, but I think when it came to the technology is that having very good either partners or staff that you can, that bought into the concept of what you're doing and that you actually have built up trust because trust is something that you build up. But when you can build up trust, but I think as the architect of what we did, it was more about I was very clear on what the solutions were. We were very clear clear that we weren't the first ones to do this, but we were the first ones to do it in this niche. So therefore you become a follower pragmatically, but then you actually understand where you pivot um, in terms of what you do. Because I always say I didn't create the wheel, but I've made it a very good wheel for my industry. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's what I would recommend to people when they're just going to build technology is you can't, you can't do it. I couldn't functionally do it, but somebody with technology skills couldn't functionally build the business so it becomes this partnership bridging different aspects of what people do yeah uh, you know and I, I i take a few lessons out of what you just said automatically um you know and the the first being really that you, you, you got to know what you're building have have the end game in mind right before you start going and throwing money around and sort of doing all that sort of stuff and and the second one was that you don't have to be first to market to become a leader, right? I mean, um, I, my background, I used to work for one of the big banks here in Australia and I used, we used to always laugh that the, the big banks were always in a race to go second. You know, they always wanted somebody else to go and take the risk first. And once they saw it work, they'd all pour in squillions of dollars and go and crush the market. But, you know, that, that essence of, you know, you can actually be very, very successful by watching the initial leader and then modelling it and improving it and pivoting it. I think so. And I think what we found also was that in our industry, um, nobody had done what we'd done. They'd been generalists, but they hadn't been specialists. And so we took the we took the mandate that we'll learn from the generalists, but we'll then apply what we know to make it so um so um important or so impactful on the industry. So that's that where we took it from is that we weren't we weren't trying to emulate what everybody else had done but what we were trying to do is do it in a way that was most impactful for the industry that we were in so that's how we did it yeah that's cool did you need to um raise capital or anything like that to be able to build the business um we sold a house yeah, yes, there you go. Yes. <laughs> so yes is the answer, and but raise it internally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, um, we did, the, the business was ostensibly bootstrapped. So we did sort of like do, you know, like friends and a little bit of friends and family at the front end, but it was, when I think about it now, we raised it like a quarter of a, quarter of a million dollars. It was such a little amount of money. Um, you know, I think we actually raised less than that. 
um, all together, I think we put in a quarter, what we put in and what sort of like friends and family put in. So it was ostensibly a bootstrap business, which I really, um, we looked at raising money. I really appreciate it. We looked at raising money at different stages of the business and it just seemed too expensive. So, um, and so what we didn't, we didn't do it. And I think what I've actually found, because as we sort of mentioned, I've now started another business and we've actually raised money for that because I hadn't done it before, right? So I sort of like the second business that we're doing, we're doing a different experience of. Um, but what I really realized was that when people don't know what you're doing, they can't see the value. So therefore the valuations suck. So then, and, and that's what it was for us because online gambling is of course now the fashion and the and it's totally acceptable but in 2022 it was not so um therefore it was you know people just basically didn't believe in it so therefore wanted to you know protect their money so we didn't do it yeah yeah i completely get the 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 point about it just being too expensive you know I go back all the way to, to investment days, I say back in banking and whatever, and it's equity is always expensive compared to debt typically in most markets. But you can't just go and borrow money either without putting equity on the line. So it's sort of this conundrum, I think, that so many entrepreneurs find themselves in. So, yeah, it's, um, I, say, I guess if it was easy, everyone would be doing it, right? <laughs> yeah, and I think what it did, so didn't raise it first time, gave me the wonderful experience i feel like i did sort of like my mba and my masters and my doctorate all in the 14 years whatever we had the business because we went from three people to basically 90 and that is very different stages of the business and very different stages of you know like startups one challenge challenge and staying on top is another challenge and then dealing with aging technology is another challenge so i think in those 14 years, we had a fabulous experience. And like I said, this startup that we're doing at the moment, we raised money in our seed round this year. And I had a fabulous time. I had a hoot. And it was relatively easy. We got a great valuation, but I couldn't have done that had I not spent that 14 years working it all out beforehand. And I and I don't think I've got a playbook in any of this is just that I, you just get the depth of experience that allows you to look at things in a different way. Yeah, you've got the confidence to walk the path, right? It's, uh, you know. Or at least all of them I have. <laughs> at least sort of say, yes, I have actually successfully exited something, so I can actually be able to get to the finish line. Yeah, so, yeah. for sure. I, I, I want to come back to the journey of income access, but I'm just curious, did you find that, the outside world, investors, advisors, whoever, did, did they treat you differently because you'd had a successful exit? Yes. Just yes. I think what happens is that when you have had a successful exit or have had an exit, right, I think every exit is successful so that by, by its dear, dear term it is, is done. Um, I think that just says that you can get it to the finish line. I think when I, I've talked to venture capitalists, especially at early stages, and they said, look, you know, 95% of the time they're investing in the people, you know, because if you, 
it's going to something's going to fail something's going to screw up that's that's the mandate of the expected and i think when you're you've actually successfully exited a business people have seen that you've been able to deal with those curveballs and that sort of like muck up and things not working out so that's what they're sort of investing in is your ability to do that as opposed to what the exit was if that makes sense yeah, oh, it makes absolute sense. Um, my guest yesterday, um, a chap, J.L. Needham, was saying the same thing in that he said, you know, getting a deal done, like there's, yes, there's the valuation and there's the core things that they want to buy, but so much of it comes down to relationships and people and the way people feel about you. And even when you hit obstacles in deals, and there are always obstacles in deals, it's actually the relationships that get you past those hurdles. Absolutely. And we were talking about, you know, technology providers, you know, like your technology partner, and it's about the trust. Um, I think in the end of the day, most people want to get a deal done, you know, especially when you've invested to wherever, if you're up to due diligence, you've done through term sheets, you've done through terms and you're, you're into the final stages. And I think most people um, do want to get a deal done. And if they've being able to see your approach. That's what I think has been the biggest lesson for me in all of this is if your approach is authentic and pragmatic and obvious, then people sort of know who they're dealing with and therefore it's a lot easier to understand people's jumps or people's point of views. You may not agree with it, but it's, it's much more relatable. And I think that's where it comes down to it. And I think that is probably one of the things that I enjoy the most and something that I've also been able to lean in the most into in building income access and then doing another startup is that it's that leaning into um, what your value set is and leaning into how you demonstrate that value set. Yeah, yeah. Just be, being able to be authentically yourself, right? And it takes a work because you know there's a lot of people that actually want you to be different from where you are because it suits them whether it be staff or suppliers or vendors or, or whatever else but I think when you can stick your path to and I think that's actually what's made me really enjoy growing a business I've got to tell you I don't enjoy the stress <laughs> um, and also the curveballs but I really enjoy the problem solving and the and the creating of something out of nothing it's it's something that I'm very passionate about and as I've aged that's something that I really um, can really appreciate about what gets my energy up um, is those things. And I think that's really important. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree. And I, and I think, I think the, the, the flip side of the scale or the other end of the scale on that kind of issue is for entrepreneurs out there thinking about their own situation is being authentically yourself is, is yes, it's about living your values and everything else, but it's also about acknowledging things you shouldn't be doing. It's actually being able to have enough EQ to say, actually, I'm really not good at that stuff. And even though I'm early stage and where, you know, you're sort of de almost desperate to take on everything, sometimes you actually have to say no to things because you shouldn't be doing them. I, I relate that into two different sections. One is I called hard money and easy money. So as when you're in the startup situation, you think all money is good money, but in actual fact, it's not. Some money is very expensive, you know, like getting a client on that you have to sort of constantly service because they were unsure about the buying decisions. So there's a lot of reinforcing that needs to go on. That's very expensive money. And the other thing, so that therefore I will err on the side of caution and 
much to the chagrin of my sales team say no to deals because I've just, they're just not worth it to me. Um, and then the other area is what you do within the business is that it's taken me a very long time um, to actually appreciate that sometimes my involvement is worse than my involvement not not being involved. And I think when you can call your own preferences and your own strengths, that allows you to give over a lot more than you would in other sets of circumstances. And just to understand that everybody is actually different. I mean, everybody's got different preferences. Everybody's got different motivations. And if I can take my ego out of it and just basically actually saying I would love to get in front of that conversation but in actual fact it's not a good use of my space or time that's sort of like where leverage comes in and you know really about building businesses about scaling and so if it's not my if I'm the round peg in the square hole then that doesn't help the rest of the organization and if I do it everybody else is going to do it that was a big thing about income access is that it was the biggest company I'd ever worked for and it was mine. So I didn't have a lot of examples to follow of how to, to, to get scale a bigger business. But one of the things that I was very aware of, especially when we got to about 45 people, whatever I did, everybody else did. So because it's whatever, it's the top sort of trickles down to the rest of the organisation. And my bad behaviour Mine sort of like running meetings too long, not having agendas in meetings, sort of like flipping and calling people into things, which is my want, um, actually completely destabilizes the whole organization because then everybody does it because by by um, osmosis, it's seen as acceptable. So um, those were things that I really learned as we moved from 10 people who cares to what you want. But then when you get to 45 and 60 and you start doing that, you've got huge amounts of waste, um, time and energy and resources. And like we said, you need to scale and scaling isn't about waste. Yeah, yeah. And 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 high functioning, high performing people too, typically, you know, you can turn people away like that if they don't have the the type of an environment that they need and expect to be continuing to to, to deliver, right? So I'm, I'm interested, that's that journey from three to 90 staff that you mentioned, 14 years, uh, you know, can we unpack that a little bit? And and um, I guess there's two elements. I'm I'm interested in the business journey. You know, you're doing development. You know, when does the business start actually making its first sales? When does it break even? When does it start becoming profitable? Because that's that's a kind of timeline that can really vary for people. And then I want to come back and talk a little bit about the leadership journey, if we could. Sure. Um, the timeline for the business was we ran out of money in nine months, so we need to be break even in nine months. So guess what? We were break even in nine months. Um, and I think it's by hook or by crook and we basically did what we needed to do to get it to that point in time and we did. There was probably a lot more consulting work going on than because that was easy for me to do because I'd come from a consulting background and my business partner actually did say to me, um, you take another consulting job on and uh, we will get divorced because he's also my husband. Um, so, so, yeah, so that was basically... Uh, you know, like we did what we could to supplement the income because there was just nothing there. And then what would, ha- would happen is that um, we just really focused on revenue. We really focused on sort of like how we were going to build up revenue, how we were going to make money. I always feel from a business 
pragmatic perspective that money is the gauge. It's not the master, it's the gauge. And the gauge really is about is that are we on the right path because is the money come, is the money flowing? And so it's sort of like for me, you know, like you talk about those uh, dogs that do the truffles in, you know, those truffle hounds. To me, money is the same thing is that what you just need to find is you need to find what are called the arterial veins for the business because once they flow, then the money flows and therefore the, the bloodstream of the business flows. Um, and so we, I'm always very pragmatic on revenue. I'm not such a cost saver. I'm not sort of a cost cutter. Um, I'm really about building revenue. But at the same time, running a small business, because that's what it was, is that you get very, you know, people think running a business is different from running a household. It's not. You have to make sure that enough money is coming in and you don't make commitments that you can't. It's just that real pragmatic side of it. And I think with a scaling business, especially when you raise money, you can lose sight of that a little bit. But we had a very, very good platform in doing that. So the business was break even very, you know, neutral very quickly. And then we only expanded as much as we could. And of course, that's very frustrating because you have bigger visions and you've got bigger dreams about where you could be. Just with a little bit more money, we could do this. But we basically kept within our knitting um, and grew as as revenue became stable, we put staff on. As this happened, we did this. So it was really revenue was the the guiding light to whatever we did. Um, and, and we built it up. And when we were very profitable and very, um, you know, revenue positive, we still kept the same very same um, pragmatic approach to, to expenses and all the rest of it, which meant we got a very good valuation in terms of what the exit was. Um, in terms of my own leadership journey, it was massive. Um, in terms of I'd never run a technology company before, I'd never had that experience of generating new markets in a new country and a new industry and, and all of this sort of thing. And I will be very, very honest in saying we moved to Canada We'd launched the technology and I think I cried every night for six months because it was just so stressful. And then what we did with the only way that I could mentally cope with that is that we said, okay, it doesn't work. It, it goes all belly up and I go and get a job. I just honestly, I had to have that safety clause inside my head that it just said, I can go and get a job. That's what I can, that's what I can do. Um, but what I really realized is my preferences, which is goes back to the EQ, where my strengths were and how I really honed what I had as a foundation going in. So I feel like I really polished that stone. And I think the difference between being a good operator and being a good leader is really just perspective. That's all it comes down to is that I think being a good leader is that if you can lead from behind, it's better. But to a certain extent, you have to emulate everything that you want it to be so that that authentic thing becomes really important because if you can't maintain it, you're screwed. <laughs> so so it's, it's being that, um, being the type of, I suppose, leader that I wanted to be that was what I, that I was able to maintain because it was just naturally who I was.
it and there's there we come back to this authenticity piece right it's the that you know i think when you're not being yourself when you're out of you know really the frame of who you are it actually takes an enormous amount of energy to keep being that person and and that's not sustainable no it's not sustainable and it also creates a wobbly foundation for the whole business because you as the leader are completely responsible it's like you are custodian of this enterprise you are you know you are the main driver you are the main focus you are the main decision maker you have the main responsibility and i actually enjoy that when i say those words all out loud it seems like oh my god that's pretty overwhelming but i think what it happens is that i just and this goes back to knowing what you love is i just love the creating i love the problem solving i love actually creating value for my relationships for my staff's relationships for the people that we work with and and with income access that business is still the main brand in the industry that it was in 20 years later the brand still exists the company still exists um and people still talk about the company in um glowing terms so that's when you keep to your knitting and you can do the things that are foundationally really important they have a life of their own that goes past I'm I've exited 6 years ago so it's sort of like it had a life past mine which is what you hope for any business uh, you know I hope to that yeah no and I think that's fabulous and I think I think in an ideal world every, everybody would like the same um I I I will say just from the perspective of there's lots of business owners out there who you're going to exit and your company is not going to keep going the way it is at the moment it's it's just that's life and sometimes you get swallowed up by large listed corporates who they don't want lots of entities they're buying you to keep growing their entity and you know that's something i think um you know we chatted a little bit about before we we jumped on air um nikki but this, this i think is part of this whole transition phase and and understanding what happens to your business after you exit what is your role in this transition period after you exit and i i think if i can give one piece of advice here to all business owners is don't wait till you're halfway through a deal to start thinking about that <laughs> because you may find emotionally that what's going on in that deal and where your business goes afterwards may not be what you want it was actually really interesting i stayed on for a couple of months after the transaction um we got uh um we were able we got cash up front so there was no one earn up for for the deal i wanted to stay on because i wanted it to be the best transaction transition that's ever been existing you know cuz you know high functioning whatever um and i actually found that when i left i was cool i was really comfortable that i had done the best job i possibly could do with the industry with my staff with setting up the the new management team you know the new owners of the business and i was really fortunate that i had no qualms about leaving i i felt like they were and the business i don't know a lot about the the operations of the business now um i of course it would have changed because we were bought by a big public company <laughs> so you know like it became one entity of a whole lot um but functionally the reputation of the business is still sustained itself i don't know whether how the operations were and i was very very impressed with myself when i was okay with that 
it was like I'd done my job and I was able to release the the entity into its new stage, um, which was really which was really cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a delicate balance I've found. It's um, you know, I think if you look at it on, on a scale, at, at one end I've seen business owners completely detached from the business. It's an it's purely an asset. I have no emotional attachment to it whatsoever. And I'm we're selling it. This is you know like if I was selling some other asset, it just doesn't it doesn't matter. At the other end of the scale, I've had clients who took the lowest of three offers because they felt that that buyer would continue their legacy in the way that they wanted, and that was just critically important to them. And they were so personally attached to the asset that. Yeah, look, it, it it impacted very much the the entire deal and process and structure. Um, I, I would say that most people, like every bell curve, fall in the middle somewhere. Um, but I, I I think too, like, there's nothing wrong with being passionate about your business. I mean, in fact, I, I would even argue you need to have some of that to actually get it where you need it to go. But somewhere along the line, you do have to say this is an asset. It's not me personally. And I- yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the way that I actually look at it is I, I look at it that this is either a cash flow, like this is it, this is something that I've, you know, I'm working for myself, but I'm working in a job, you know, like, or this is an asset that I'm building. So it needs to be separate from me. So I think that I think these are all really interesting decisions that I'd come to myself over the process. Like, Am I building, am I, you know, am I creating a cash flow for myself? Like, am I creating a job for myself for the rest of my life, pragmatically? Or am I creating an asset that has got to survive, um, survive past me? And that's what I always did. So I think it's like, you know, Stephen Covey's seven habits begin with the end in mind. Understand what you're actually doing with it. Um, and it does get very addictive because especially when you've got a successful business that grows and you're seen as the architect of all of that and you're seen as the driving force between, between, behind all of that. And it's still an asset. It's still, it's not still, I've learned a lot and I grew as a person because of my experience that I loved and I will be also very grateful and thankful for that, but it's not me, you know. And that's how I sort of feel now during my second one is that, I can still have the same passion and I still take all the same care and consideration because it's, of course, so much uh, more fragile at this startup stage than it was the establishment stage. But it's still not me. It's an asset. It's something that I'm creating. Critically important. I always say to people, if you keep referring to your business as a baby, then you're going to be offended if somebody walks in and says you have an ugly child. So, you know, <laughs> best to try to find the lines there and and yeah, <laughs> keep keep the separation. But um, let's let, if we can shift gear a little bit. Um, you know, you mentioned a little bit about um, your deal structure, but I and 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 I know we'll get to kind of valuation and all that sort of stuff. But can you talk to me about that part of the journey? Um, you know, 14 years in business, but at what point during that journey did you start thinking or did you start talking to your partner about actually exiting? Um, we'd actually, so it's like most, of, as I've discovered, you you know this better than I do because of where you sit in the, the chain of this industry. Um, we'd actually tried to exit, I think it was three years, four years before we actually did. So we went a whole deal process to the point that we did 
hired a consultant to do it, hired, did um, books, accountants, due diligence, you know, people in the office, the whole thing. And the deal was done and it was taken to the board for the comp for the transaction. And in that time, in that in that meeting, um, the board and the CEO decided to part company. Oh. And so the CEO was the one that was driving the transaction. Uh. So that just like to the point that they'd asked us for bank account details for the transfer of the money, you know, like wow. in bond. Ah. And I've got to tell you, I was very frustrated. Oh yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so the one process. So, you know, like as as you say, it's sort of like, you know, doing this is um a journey. And so that one blipple in the journey that I really actually appreciated because we got the business. I'm also a glass half full person. So, you know, like I took the great things from the silver lining. Um, we got the companies, my company at the time, better financially structured. We um, started data rooms earlier. You know, like we we got ourselves all organized. And at the time that we were, so we, and then the second time around, we were approached by the buyer to see if we wanted to sell. And they were actually a client of ours. So we'd had a long history together. I knew them very well. And we we were approached by them. And at that time, I was actually looking to get everything together because I wanted to raise money because I wanted to buy something else. So we were sort of like, I was doing it for this purpose. They come in from this purpose, but we met at the same time. So, it was, and it was a very, from my perspective, it seemed like a very quick process. They approached us in the May and the transaction was done by August. So it was, so it was, a, and I didn't feel it was rushed either. It was just like step on step on step on step on step. But but what you've just described there is is um, you know opportunity meets preparedness, right? I mean, that's, that's, it. that's the best way of actually putting it. Like I was I was looking around at valuations because we were wanting to raise, and and so therefore when they approached and they said we said, um, you know, we said the number they said a number. Or something. It was basically we said we won't go below this, and they said, "Well, we won't go behind, uh, uh, um, above this." And it was the same number. So, <laughs> what we just actually all worked towards um, as it went along. That's fabulous. Yeah, it, it just sounds like the stars really aligned for you at that point. And um, out of interest, um, given your previous experience and everything else. I imagine you probably had a lawyer that you used and, you know, your accountants were kind of lined up. You No doubt your books and everything were in order anyway, but um, did you have somebody else coming in helping you with the deal or like what I'm trying to get to is kind of what was the deal team or people around you that supported you through the transaction? So this was the other thing that was really interesting is that we got, we used PwC as our accountants um, in Canada and um and I only had got them because of their deal experience um, to come in and help us. Um, but in actual fact, they we did the work and they just rubber stamped it. So I, I had a brilliant team behind me in terms of my controller at the time. She and I were like, you know, hand in a glove and that sort of thing. So I think the, the PwC assistance was more validating than instructional. And, and, and I want to just pick up on that point for a second, if I can, because 
I, for business owners who are listening to this, the perception around your numbers and the perception around your business is so critical going into these deals. Um, you know, I've often said to them, you know, you've, you're using an outsourced bookkeeper and an accountant who does a bit of compliance tax work for you. When you put your numbers on the table, how, how much confidence do you think the buyer is going to have in that compared to audited financials from one of the big four? Like yes. it's, it, it, that perception, you're trying to build trust, an enormous amount of trust in a very short period of time. So things like, as you say, the rubber stamp, the branding behind it, things like that, they, they add value, even if you can't measure that value. <laughs> and, I, and I think our deal was slightly different because the buyer had been a client of ours for like six or seven years. So there's sure. a lot of trust there. And we were the player in the industry. Um, I did it for the rubber stamping. Um, everybody else who was involved in the deal just looked at me and said, do you really need that layer of expense? And I said, yes, I do. Um, probably going into something else, I wouldn't, um, just because we were talking about, you know, the difference between having not done it and having done it before and how differently people see it or view it or whatever else. So that was that was de- that was a re- definitely rubber stamping. But I actually had... Um, we didn't have a lot of resources. We didn't use a lot of legal. We had our own in-house legal. We had our own in-house because we were at 90. So, you know, like you've got that sort of stuff. And But then the legal team that we used um, from a Canadian company called Norton Rose, we had one of the partners um, in the Montreal office do the deal. And I've got to tell you, their massive legal bill was worth every single cent. Um, and that's where I really didn't know what I didn't know. And the team at Norton Rose um, and Pete Wazowski there really, w- I could have paid them double and still felt very comfortable. Yeah, you got value from it, yeah. Yeah, well, the value, the, yeah, because I, we were being bought by a public company. So there were sorts of lots of things that I was exposed to that I didn't understand or, or understand the implications of. It, it's, there's a couple of things, a bit of a, a theme I'm picking up on what you're saying here from PwC to Norton Rose is the importance of using people, and you said it before, with deal experience, people who actually understand transactions. They, they you know, using the walking the path analogy, you know, they've walked that path so many times. They know don't trip over that log, watch out for that branch. You've got to – and, and Yeah. I, I think too often I've seen people – in a deal, and this happens even just a, more at the smaller level of deals where they go, oh, no, we've got these lawyers. We use them for everything. We really, I really like Bob. Bob's a nice bloke. And Bob might be a nice bloke and he might be fantastic at the sort of typical area of law where he focuses. But if they don't do deals and don't do them every day, you, you probably need to think about whether they're the right person to manage just the transaction. And, of course, you need to manage the relationship around that and you don't want to offend people. But if you do this, you're probably going to do it once. So kind of you want to make sure you get that right. Absolutely. And there's so much stuff, you know, like I've referred to the second business. Like I, there's so much stuff about raising money I didn't know. You know, like there because the first business was ostensibly self-financed and bootstrapped, there was sort of like I, I really, I think one thing that I've got very skilled at is asking the question of not what's the next two steps, but what does ten, ten, step number 10 look like? Because that allows me to understand how one decision can go off into sort of like massive, like different trajectories on that 
on that um, on that uh, percentage. You've just given me the the archery analogy. Basically, it's you know anybody who's ever done archery, and if you haven't, you'll still get the analogy here. But in archery, you, you shoot an arrow, and it lands on the outer. Doesn't, it doesn't even hit the round part. It hits the top corner of the board. But for you to go from there to a bullseye is not this massive movement. It's it's actually fractional, such a fractional movement, and all of a sudden yes. now you're hitting it. That's it. And I think that's what I really realised is that. I don't have to be the smartest person in the room. I don't have to be the person that's got the depth of experience or depth of knowledge in all of the intricacies that there is in running a business. What I have to be is I have to be the person that wants to ask the questions like, so how can this screw up? What implications does that have for us if this doesn't turn out the way that we think it's going to? Can we live with that? You know, like I use a, um, I always say, plan for the worst and hope for the best. So I'm always the one asking the questions of, so not what step three look like, but what does step 10 look like? And and what does step 10 look like from a staff perspective, from an employee perspective, from a supplier perspective, from an investor perspective, all the stakeholders. And I think that's what my job ends up being is trying to crystal boil ball to some extent. And then what we wanna be able to do is take that information, look at the resources, look at what my preferences are because if I have to live with something, I have to decide whether I can live with it or not and then take it from there. I think that's what the job ends up becoming. Yeah, that's brilliant advice, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, look, absolutely. And it's and, and no doubt those those roles, you know, coming back to your leadership thing, but it's the, the, your role changes over time as your company grows. You know, I, I, I don't know anybody who's running a company of 90, 100 employees who says, yes, my job today is what it was, same as what it was when we were five employees. Um, no. So, And I mean, this is, I, I actually say to a lot of people, you know, like I am your worst nightmare because I've done your job. So, <laughs> and I know how I've done your job and I have an opinion on how you do your job because that's what happens when you grow a company up. You've had to have done every role, especially I'm front of house, right? So I'm the one that's dealt with the clients. I've done the sales. I've done the account management. I've done the conflict resolution. And I actually say, and because also my bet is really on the marketing and PR side of it, you know, like we hired a new marketing director and I said, look, I'm really sorry, but I'm your worst nightmare because I have such an opinion on how you do your job. Yeah, totally. But if you do it better than me, that's even better, right? I'll be, you know, celebrating. <laughs> it's luck luckily enough, a lot of people are a lot better skilled than I am. Nikki, <laughs> um, cognizant of time here, can we tell me a bit about what you're doing today? Uh, um, I have... In affiliate marketing again um, and um, we have created a company that does the same thing that I did in gambling but for financial services so we actually work with all of the big banks in Canada and the US in getting them new customers for their credit cards for their um, loan products for their mortgages and all the rest of it we actually work with an Australian company called Finder as an affiliate Lily. So yeah, I met the guys in uh, New York uh, in May, actually. So we, um, I'm doing the same thing again in a new financial and in, in a new industry. Yeah, nice, nice. That sounds good. And that's that was is that Fintel Connect? Is that yes, sort of company? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I've got to tell you, I would never recommend an entrepreneur doing what we've done, because even though that I'm a content expert in affiliate marketing for niches. I'm definitely have had to get up to speed very quickly on financial services. 
and the players and how the industry works and things like that. And I didn't think I realized what a large step it was to go from an industry where I had grown up with the industry and knew all the players and all the players knew me to being anonymous in a massive industry like financial services. So it's definitely a very uh, silly or courageous step, one of the two. <laughs> Spoken like a true entrepreneur. Every entrepreneur looks at it and goes, yeah, I can see how this would work. I'll do it. But if we don't, if we don't deceive ourselves a little bit about how much work's involved, we probably wouldn't do half the things we do. I, I'm, yes. Never <laughs> sure what has been spoken. <laughs> um, Nikki, I, I really appreciate you coming on the show. I've, I've just so enjoyed chatting to you, and I, I think you've shared so many beautiful insights and, and you know, real nuggets for people to take away. So I'm, I'm really grateful. Um, are, are you happy for people to, to reach out and connect with you? Sure. Absolutely not a problem. Not quite sure what we I can contribute, but really happy because the fact is that I think it's all, always about how you can help the next person behind you. Totally agree. Totally agree. Look, we're going to put your, I'll put your LinkedIn profile anyway in the show notes and, and a link to, um, and to, to the you know, company websites and whatnot. But um, um, it, and I always say on the show, if people are going to reach out, please perhaps put a little note in there and just let Nikki know that maybe you heard her on the podcast so she understands where you're coming from. Um, it's just a bit weird sending connection requests and things like that without any context. So, um, but Nikki, look, thank you once again. I've loved chatting to you. Um, I wish you all the best for, for your future endeavours. Thanks so much for having me, Simon. It's been a blast. Okay, thank you everyone for joining us on the show today. I hope you've uh, you've enjoyed it. I know I certainly have. Um, we will put all those show notes up soon and um, by all means, we hope to have you on the next episode. Thanks for joining us. The ultimate freedom is to own a company that is valuable, scalable and saleable. Find out how you score on the eight factors that drive company value by completing the Value Builder questionnaire. Upon completion, we will send through your business scorecard so you can see how to maximize the value of your company. Just go to exitadvisory.com.au forward slash scorecard. The Buy, Grow, Sell podcast is brought to you by Exit Advisory Group, a boutique M&A firm that helps business owners maximize company value and exit at the top of their game. To learn more about Exit Advisory Group, you can go to exitadvisory.com.au. And if you like what you've just heard, you can subscribe at buygrowsell.com to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Thank you for listening to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast with Simon Bedard. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit buygrowsell.com forward slash episodes. Simon is the founder and CEO of Exit Advisory Group, and you can follow him on LinkedIn.